So, y'all, I want to just tell y'all about a little victory that I had today. I have this plush, amazing, comfortable ass robe. It's not an ass robe, it's a robe robe. Um, (laughs) That I found today that I had thought I'd lost when I moved. And let me tell you, it's like... 100% 100% fake, but it's like fake mink fur. It's like lounging in your house with your pearls and your glass of wine kind of robe. And I got this bitch at the Nordstrom Rack clearance rack for like 20 bucks years ago. It is a double XL woman's robe, but that <laughs> means it's made for tall ladies like me. And I love it so fucking much. Literally, just put some red lipstick on and some pearl earrings and, like, pour yourself a martini, and you're that bitch at home. I would look like a drag queen who just got done with a really (laughs) exhausting set in, like, a rich neighborhood. (laughs) Hey, whatever floats your boat, it'd be very relaxing, is all I'm saying. Because you'd be chilling in your robe. Or I would look like I just got devastating news. Like, if I also had just... Some real blown out shadowy eyes that were like, I was crying a little bit. So it's running with my martini. Okay, well. well. <laughs> <laughs> um, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I guess drama's not good enough for Brittany today. <laughs> I'm just jealous. I'm not wearing a comfy robe. I'm wearing a t-shirt and leggings, though, which is also really comfortable. Yeah, I can't really wear leggings, just as I mean, a guy. <laughs> you could, but you, you choose not to. I kind of want to get some. I bet my butt would look amazing. I don't really know what to tell you. Okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> that felt genuine. All right, so, Patreon? <laughs> yes. As Brittany reads me to filth over here with her eyes. Anywho. Hey, I'm not reading anyone to filth. I'm glad you're comfortable in your robe. Maybe you should get some leggings. They're literally the pants I live in daily. I mean, fair. One thing that does suck about this robe, though, is it is currently 5,000 degrees and I am a furnace. (laughs) Why are you wearing it then? It was comfortable, but now I'm not sitting next to my fan. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Anywho, Patreon. So, um, for those of y'all that don't know, Patreon, it's awesome. It's a community of supporters we have. And if you join, you get to do awesome things like watch our, or I mean, I guess you can watch it, but more likely listen to our murder minis, which are Patreon exclusive episodes. You get different perks, one of which is you get to direct your own episode. That means you get to say what topic, what cases, Anything you want, and we do it for our episode, and today's episode is actually a Patreon pick. So if you want to be a part of that, check out Blood & Wine Podcast Patreon. Yes, and while you're at it, be sure you have subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, find us on uh, Google Play, Pandora, Podbean, Tyler's Favorite, you know, just be sure you are subscribed or and or following us, and you'll get alerts for all our new episodes when they drop on Tuesdays. So, Tyler, you were mentioning that we are doing a Patreon pick, and so let's tell our listeners about this episode and about our director. Yes, yeah, so today's topic was picked by our Patreon family member, Erin Duffy. 
she messaged us and she was like, okay, so what if we did a topic where you have the killers that everyone thinks it is, everyone's gunning for them, and then, just kidding, sharp left turn, turns out they're not part of it at all, wasn't them. They were red herrings, basically. And we really liked that idea. So, of course, we went in and gave it a little bit of a blood and wine twist. Because we're all about the twists, and we're like, let's take an unexpected topic, make it even more unexpected. So we went along the lines of unexpected killers. So the kinds of people that basically until you know it's them, you would have no idea. There's that big uh, sharp left turn. Originally, let me tell you, I was like, ooh, how do we we search for this topic? Because they can go a lot of ways. And I searched red herring murders, and I fell into a literary hole of Agatha Christie. Yeah, and then you had to explain to me what a red red herring is, because I was like, I know this, but I can't remember this. I learned it too long ago. I mean, it was just the chunk of my brain that has decided to just retain all of my AP lit knowledge won't die. As much wine as I drink, I can't get rid of that. Yeah, you watched Star Wars, didn't you? To analyze it for all the different, like, archetypes and stuff? No, I've never seen Star Wars. Oh, Oh, we did that. I think archetypes is the right thing I'm thinking of. Yeah, no, it is. Anyway, I did that. We had the same English teacher many years apart. Yes, we did. Uh, But thank you so much, Erin, for today's topic. Um, I know I have a really, really full of twists and turns case coming up for you, and I know Brittany does too. But before that, uh, let's hop into our wine, because we're going to both need it. Brittany, what wine are you drinking tonight? It's funny you say dive into our wines, because mine actually has inspiration from a lake, and I will explain myself. Is your wine the lady of the lake? Did you pull her out and she glistened in the moonlight and was never more? But was a bottle of wine? No. This is the... Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm drinking the 2018 Paso Dragon Cabernet Sauvignon from Paso Robles, California. And this is one that was $7 at Trader Joe's, and there is a lake called Lake Nasamiento, and it is known by locals as the dragon, and that's because the lake itself is shaped like a dragon. So see all the blue on the bottle? Oh, yeah. That's the lake. And um, so this wine is based off of that, and the grapes are grown in that same region there in California. And it's made from fully mature grapes that get that way because of the substantial amounts of rainfall that the area gets. So the soil stays very moist. This wine is ruby red, bold, with aromas of black fruit, hints of black licorice, and toasted marshmallow. And it's moderately oaked, and it's more dry than it is sweet. So this is one of those red wines that would be very perfect with like a, a premium choice ribeye steak. Mm. But I just thought this bottle was really cool with the dragon. And then I started reading more about it, that it was actually like based on the lake and it's from there and it's a cab and I'm excited about it. So I'm going to open nice. it. Nice. Yeah. Oh, and it was only like $7. Did I say the price? Yeah, you did. At $7 like Trader Joe's? Yeah. Nice. This one is a regular cork. So... No screw tops for me. Smells like wine in the bottle. 
Yeah. You're like, smells like curry. <laughs> like a Thai curry. I'd be like, oh, I don't know if you do want to drink that wine or don't. <laughs> it's got a... It smells very meaty. It does not. It smells oh. like a cab. It's got very like... Hemi. It's got those very classic, like, dark fruit, berry, oak, California vanilla. cab. It's a California cab, and I'm looking forward to it because you know how much I love my Paso cabs. That is true. But, Tyler, what wine did you pick for this episode? So I picked the 2019 Eguren Tierra Castilla Vieira wine. What did you just say? <laughs> it's the 2019 Tierra Castilla Vieira. That was better. The first time you said it, it was so like you. I mean, you probably said it properly, and it it was all together. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a Vieira grape, and I've never had oh. that before. And it's from the Tierra de Castilla in Spain. So it is a Spanish wine, 100% Vieira. It is pale and crystalline. It has fine herbaceous aromas, hints of lemon, a very clean nose. Um, and its taste, it's a delicious grand sensation of lusciousness. Oh, it's a like, white. I don't know what that means. Oh, yeah, it's a white wine. It's a very light white wine. It's very crisp, perfect for the summer. And it was a great value. It was like $8, I think it was $7.99, and I got it at Total Wine, so you can probably find it a lot more places. And then I pulled a couple reviews like I usually do. One person said, The price? Hard to believe this dry, herbal, slate, and mineral-tasting Spanish wine is under 6 bucks. Okay, well, they got it for a better deal than I did. <laughs> it's great in the summer heat. Sometimes other whites tend to get too cloyingly sweet after one glass. Ugh, my friends. Oh my gosh. Whites getting too sweet. <laughs> <laughs> That's me after one glass. Um, I haven't had it with food yet, but definitely have a feeling this will hold up to some summer picnic staples like cured meats and cheese. Unlike other whites that would just get lost, me in the woods. So... <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you're having your summer wine the week before Thanksgiving. Um... Yeah, and I'm in Texas, so it's still 80 fucking degrees outside, <laughs> so I could have my summer wine by the pool, while people in the north are like, I don't know, digging snow tunnels or whatever y'all do in Minnesota. Another review said, <laughs> <laughs> Brittany's just not impressed. I'm on my game tonight, and she's like, anyways. <laughs> no, I was trying to think of some witty like comeback, but I don't, I don't know anything about Minnesota. <laughs> I mean, a lot of lakes, a lot of tater tot hot dishes, and a lot of Norwegians. So why you want to move to Minneapolis? Minneapolis. Yeah, Minneapolis. Okay, I was right. I started to say where I was thinking, and I was like, that's incorrect. It's not. I was thinking the right thing. Yeah, Minneapolis is currently my number three or number four city in my mental ranking. That you've never been to? No, never been to it, but I want to. I want to go to Minneapolis in the winter so bad, and then anytime I tell anyone from the Midwest, they're like, do you have a death wish? Do you understand wind chill of negative 30 degrees? And I'm like, yes, I do. Thank you. I would like one ticket, please. Anyways, 
So I'm drinking a Spanish summer wine, which is a little opposite from Minnesota winter. But this next review, they said they have traveled extensively in Spain. And they chose the Vino Tintos, which are the red wines there, as well as when they got home. Though Spain is not known for their white wines, sometimes I want a lighter wine to accompany my meal. Aguirre is the perfect choice. It's flavorful, light yet full-bodied, and affordable. Great for the warmer months. So, all three reviews, like the official one, the two I pulled, were all like, great summer wine, and I'm like, it's November. But I'm excited to drink it anyway, because sometimes... That's all you need when you are stuck inside all winter and you're like, ugh, I need a mental break. Pull out a a vacation bottle. Make yourself a Mai Tai or something and have it on the couch. Sometimes that mental shift of like, ugh, vacation. I only have margaritas when I'm on vacation. Make yourself a damn margarita. Put yourself in vacation mind even if it's cold outside. Boom. Yeah, that's a really good point. Just to kind of like escape through the bottle. I know. That's why I made it. Also, I don't know if I would call it escaping through the bottle. That sounds like something you should talk to your therapist about. But <laughs> Yeah, maybe not the right phrasing, but escaping with a drink. Escaping with the bottle. <laughs> okay, well, on that note, I'm going to open this bottle and we can all escape together. Uh, pl- deal. <sighs> Tyler, I swear to God, you need a new opener because also, how am I the one who gets wine all over myself when that's how you treat it? Because I hold the bottle down with the other hand and pull with the other. It's kind of like decapitating a Barbie. (laughs) Tyler! You just gotta put your foot on their back and pull. I know, you did that to all of our Barbies. I was a fucked up little kid. I was struggling with my sexual identity. (laughs) We just wanted you to play with us with them, and you wanted to rip their heads off because it's what you thought you were supposed to do. Well, it's not that much. Don't give me that look. Oh, I was going to say, you've still got a couple inches if you want to keep going. Well, on that note. What do you smell? I smell wine. I mean, it smells like a nice light white wine. Honestly, kind of giving me Sauvignon Blanc vibes, but any like really light, crisp wine makes me think Sauvignon Blanc since the differences between like a New Zealand, a California, a French, a South African are so different that I'm like, it's kind of all encompassing of light, crisp. So that's what I'm getting. You've really been on a white wine kick lately. I just want my kids to get into good schools, okay? I am getting a little bit, I guess, of the herbaceous notes, maybe like some parsley or like savory cooking herbs kind of thing. Did you say parsley or parsley? Parsley? (laughs) I thought it was parsley. This is like that question of Lauren or Lauren. Uh, Lauren? Who says Lauren? Ralph Lauren. Okay, that's French. What is parsley? I don't know. I, I thought feel it... like that's how you say it. But I thought it was parsley. Parsley, parsley. It's P A R, right? Yeah, parsley. Sorry, you guys. My world is being shaken right now because I've said parsley wrong my entire life. I okay. I 
will say I've been watching a lot of cooking shows per use, and I have been watching a lot of British ones, and I think they pronounce it parsley. So you might not be wrong. You might just be American. Oh my which god. Which is kind of the same. <laughs> I'm like, I feel like that sentence could be used <laughs> to describe so many things. You're not wrong. You're just American. American. Okay. I'm sorry. I got distracted by the English language. It happens a lot. A lot more often than you would think. Listen, as Dame Maggie Smith said in RuPaul's Snatch Game, We originated the language! I'm so sorry, Ben de la Creme and Dame Maggie Smith. That was awful. But, um... Can I please have my wine yet? yet now? Yeah, I need yeah, it. it smells, I'm crying. Okay, I can... <laughs> yes, you are. Okay, cheers and all that. <laughs> Brittany's, all right. Brittany's having a moment. We gotta give her this, y'all. <laughs> Everyone come together. Mentally cheers for Brittany. Brittany, Brittany. You guys, this is a long week. But, <laughs> cheers. Cheers. Oh. 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 Is it nasty? No. Oh, you had your this is nasty face. No, it's surprising. It tastes like mead. I thought you were about to say me. Like you, but me. Whatever. Tastes like when I sip the bath water. Ew. (laughs) No, it tastes like mead. Like honey wine. Like this is, it's not sweet. But this flavor is 100% like clover honey. I guess I could see what they mean with like, oh no, the fruit, the tasting notes. They just said delicious and grand sensation of lusciousness. Guess that means clover honey, y'all. Sensation of lusciousness. That's a mouthful. So is this wine. This is a delicious cab. I mean, I'm just going to say it. It is your classic Paso Robles, California cab. Very... You've got the fruit, but it is dry. It's not sweet. You've got the berry. You have that oakiness, little bits of, um, I'm getting a little bit of leather. I haven't gotten the licorice yet, but guys, oh my gosh, for $7, this is phenomenal. This is a fantastic wine. I highly recommend this. Yeah. And this one, I am also a huge fan. Definitely, again, very honey lemon almost like the wine version of like a honey lemon tea when you have a sore throat oh my god that sounds delicious yeah oh my god if you made like actually that'd be gross i was gonna say like make a hot toddy with this that'd be gross though don't do that don't do that that'd be gross this is a summer hot toddy cold toddy yeah but uh, okay, so with that, we have our wine, we have our topic. Thank you, Aaron Duffy. Brittany, what is your unexpected killer's case? I will be talking about serial killer Carl Denke. The sources I used, an article from All That's Interesting by William DeLong, an article on Ranker, and an article from Criminal Minds Fandom, which this literally is a wiki for people who are obsessed with the show Criminal Minds, and they do, like, all this research of influences for the show of, like, actual killers. And so Carl Dinky was actually, he influenced a couple of episodes in Criminal Minds. Oh, those fandom wikis are kind of my everything. I very much, like, 
probably three of my most go-to websites are the Drag Race Wiki, the Avatar Last Airbender and Legend of Korra Wiki, and the Hunger Games Wiki. I love them. I know. I love these wiki pages because people just find things and make connections that I never could. I just love going to the trivia page and being like, what are fun facts I never knew about so-and-so? Uh, You know, one of my favorite things to look at, I go to imdb.com, go to some of my yes. favorite movies, and look at the goofs and the trivia. Yes. I can do that for hours. <laughs> but you don't even watch movies. I know. But the ones I have seen, I can read about them for hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Carl Dinky, or he was also known as Papa Dinky, he, oh. it, his hometown, he was so well-loved. Like, he was one of those men who was known to have this very kind soul. He played the organ at his local church. He took in homeless vagrants and offered them a meal or two before they went on their way. But what the town of Zimbica, Poland, did not realize is that Dinke was one of the worst serial killers in modern human history. Oh, shit. Well, there you go. I mean, I'm glad they didn't realize and then still love him, because that, <laughs> I mean, that's problematic in a different way. Yeah, that would be very problematic. They're like, well, I mean, like, he kind of kills people, but he's a really nice guy. He was born in 1870, so this one's a little old. A little bit. Carl came from a family of well-respected and wealthy farmers living near the border of Poland and Germany. Carl got into some trouble at school, his grades weren't the best, and when he was 12 years old, he ended up running away from home and became an apprentice to a gardener. Do gardeners need apprentices? I don't know. Like, how big is this garden? Very large. Maybe it was, he was like an, I don't know. Like a farmhand? Maybe. But when his father <laughs> died when he was 25 years old... Carl got some of his inheritance, his brother ended up taking over the family farm, and Carl used his money to buy a small farm of his own. So he was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to try to go in my family's roots and be a farmer. Unfortunately, he was not a very good farmer, and he failed. He ended up liquidating his assets, and instead, he bought a two-story home in Zabita, which is this town in southwestern Poland, and he also rented a small shop next door. In his shop, he sold a lot of different random things, a lot of different odds and ends. He sold leather suspenders, belts, shoelaces, and the 8,000 residents of the town. (laughs) So just varying strips of leather? That's not very exciting. No, it was just, like I said, it's this random assortment of things. And, like, everyone in town would come buy things from his shop. And he also sold some small bites there. He had jars of boneless pickled pork, which is apparently a thing. Sounds disgusting to me. I mean, I would try it. (laughs) Okay, also, you act like in America we don't have pickled pig's feet in most grocery stores in the South. That's fair. We definitely do. I would not try that. I would. I mean, listen, don't knock it till you've tried it. Some things just scare me and <laughs> they're not going in my mouth. That's what she said. <laughs> it's definitely, <laughs> yes, I walked right into that one. Yep. So, okay, like I said, along with owning the shop and being a shop owner, he also volunteered at his local church. 
He played the organ on a regular basis, and he would carry crosses for local funerals. At those funerals was also one of the places where he came into contact with some of the migrants and vagrants that were in the town. So he would find them at the funerals and offer them a place to stay for a few nights, and then he would send them on their way. So after World War I, Germany was hit with really bad inflation, and it made living in Eastern Europe really difficult. Fun fact, post-World War I Germany, the inflation was so bad that a lot of shopkeepers would weigh stacks of bills instead of counting them because it was easier. So it's like, oh, okay, one kilo of $100 bills is, you know, a package of potatoes. That's insane. People would wallpaper their walls with money because it was cheaper than getting wallpaper. Yeah, like the inflation was so huge that like bartering was more of a thing. Like you would just like trade things and not even worry about money. Yeah. So unfortunately, because of these extraordinarily high inflation rates, Carl didn't have enough savings um, and he, he was forced to sell his house. But he refused to move out. Investors turned this his house into an apartment complex, and then he ended up renting two of the rooms next to his shop. So this was in 1921. And again, this is right in the middle of an economic de- depression, but it was easier for him to rent than to own. Economic depression? Honey, just me at the bank. <laughs> Financial <laughs> depression. <laughs> So he still lived on the ground floor and then also had his shop right next door. And this is the time when he started taking in more homeless migrants and people who were too poor for anyone to notice really what was happening to them. Not only did the homeless people never come out of Carl's shop, but they also became the products of his shop. The leather? Yes. So in some sick and twisted dark portion of his mind he basically treated these humans like they were cattle and so all of these so-called leather belts shoelaces suspenders well they did not come from cowhide they were made of human flesh oh my god what does human leather even look like i don't i guess cow leather yeah um and you know that pickled pork uh nope that was pickled human see then I wouldn't try it. <laughs> but only then. Honestly, I'm literally picturing like a raw pork chop floating in a jar, but pickled. And no, but also it's not a pork chop. It's a chunk of a man's leg. Yep. The first victim of Carl's was someone named Ida Launder in 1903. So remember I told you uh, this shop was in 1921. So this is something he'd been doing for a while. Oh my god, yeah. And from that point on, he continued his killings and ended up claiming the lives of dozens of people. But even with all of these people going missing, no one suspected Carl. And there are a few reasons. Again, he was just seen as this very helpful man in the community, a member of the church. He was their organist. He helped with the funerals. And, you know, when it came to the fact that he lost his apartment, it just seemed like he was this kind-hearted man trying to make the best of a bad situation. 
letting migrants come stay with him. You know, he just, he was such a good man. Second, like we were talking about earlier with this huge inflation and he couldn't afford anything with cash. So instead he was trading goods and well, he needed goods to trade and leather goods were good goods. So there, there, there's that. And, and no one thought twice. And last, there was also a food shortage going on. So people were really appreciative of his pickled pork and they bought it from him readily. I mean, if there's a food shortage going around and there is this guy selling non-perishable meat and protein, I'll be, I mean, oh my God, that's huge. Yeah. Because that's, that's the one thing you can't store. You can salt it and that'll make it last for a little bit. But I mean, yeah. Oh my God. That's horrifying. Taking advantage of like the mindset of desperate people selling them a product that they're like, oh my God, yes, we need this. Just kidding. It's your family member. Literally everything he was doing that people thought he was so kind for was the exact opposite. No, no one would have imagined what he was actually doing. He, oh he was, God. he was so unexpected. So this is how things stayed. No one had, was any the wiser until December 21st, 1924. And this is when a man covered in blood stumbled out into the streets and screamed for help. And his name was Vincent Oliver. And Carl's upstairs neighbor is the one who heard him screaming for help and came to his aid. As a doctor was tending to his wounds, this is when Oliver said that Papa Denke was the one who attacked him with an axe. Oh my god. Authorities arrested Denke and interrogated him. He said that Oliver attacked him and that he wielded an axe in self-defense. The authorities arrested him and, and placed him in jail. And at 11.30 that evening, Carl Dinky hanged himself in his jail cell. Oh, shit. So at this point, authorities are pretty confused. And so they notified his next of kin. And then they started searching his apartment on Christmas Eve for some answers. Because they, at this point, they're like, well, he attacked this guy. He said it was self-defense. And then he hung himself. So what's going on here? So when investigators first got into the apartment, they noticed, like, the overpowering smell of vinegar. But that really wasn't suspicious because they knew that vinegar is a big part of the pickling process. And as officers were looking around, they found identification papers for 12 different travelers. Some assorted clothing, um, a pair of drums holding large pieces of meat in brine, and oh, I was thinking like drums. No, no, no. Like pro- these were probably metal drums, like oil drums. Yeah, and they've got pieces of Ooh. meat and brine and pots full Ooh. of fat. Ew! But what was really unusual on top of all of that? Because that, you know, sure, if he's pickling stuff, I guess can be explained. Anyone pickling drums of meat in their house, they need to go take that stuff to the workshop. What was really unusual, though, was the pile of bones in his bedroom. Um, In his bedroom? Yeah. And they were very, very clearly not pig bones. 
they were human bones. And in his closet, they found blood-stained clothes. So it was literally like he was doing everything inside of his apartment and keeping that shit in his bedroom. I'm just picturing he made this, like, bone throne in his bedroom. No, I mean, he's not Dahmer, but damn. I mean, he did have a big pile of bones in his room. Well, welcome to the bone throne. (laughs) So, officers speculated that from the amount of remains that they found in Dinky's apartment, he'd killed at least 42 victims. Holy shit. Dinky targeted travelers and homeless people of both genders. He somehow lured them into his house and killed them by bludgeoning them with an axe. He then dismembered the bodies post-mortem with the axe and presumably other cutting tools that they did find in the house. And he is alleged to have sold at least some of the retrieved flesh at the markets. So the pickled pork jars, they, they could actually be pork some of them we don't know and to me that's even more terrifying maybe it is human maybe it is pig maybe it's a little of both maybe it's maybelline so decades later this case it's mostly forgotten i had never heard of this until i stumbled upon it another one of those where i'm like how do we not know i know the pig butcher of west poland he wasn't butchering pigs though No. But those who are still aware of it refer to Dinky as the unusual case or the forgotten cannibal. And I can agree with that. He is very much the forgotten cannibal. Oh my god, that's a name. (laughs) The forgotten cannibal. It's a new restaurant opening up downtown. Oh, see, I was thinking it was a memoir. (laughs) Oh god. It's (laughs) Deathbed Confessions. The Forgotten Cannibal. God, please don't give Issei Sagawa any fucking ideas. Oh, he's not forgotten. We all fucking remember. True. So, even to this day, Dinky's exact motives, his methods, and much about his life is still unknown. We have no idea why he did the things that he did. And since he did commit suicide... They barely even got to talk to him. They interrogated him once. They had one conversation with him where he claimed self-defense. And there was never another opportunity to ask questions. So we don't know why. Shit. The unknown motive, methods, and madness of the unknown cannibal. Boom. Book title right there. That's a tongue twister. But that is the story of the forgotten cannibal, Carl Dinky. Wow. Okay. You brought it. Yeah. So uh, I guess if you're a nice person, we can all know that means maybe you are still a serial killer. And eating people. Yeah, because this is like twofold. He wasn't just killing them, but he was also eating them and selling them. I know. I mean, and I say eating them, and I do realize I never said anything about him eating them. But if he's pickling them, you know he was eating it too. He, He took a bite off the top, yeah. He was eating it, too. Like, it was his meat and meat for him to sell, you know? I mean, can you just imagine being, like, the mom in town, you know, hearing the news, and then just looking down at her kid's shoelaces that she got from him, being like, oh, my God, who are they? Not, not you know, looking at the shoelace and literally being like, who is in my, who is on my son's shoes? And think even a step further, being in a position where you have no money to replace them. 
Yeah. Because you kind of need shoelaces, especially if it's like the Polish winter. Can't not wear shoes. It's just horrifying. I know. I know. This one is so messed up. But yeah, Tyler, who is your unexpected killer? So my case is a doozy. My case is the case of the Yorkshire Ripper. You picked someone named Ripper. God, that always just... I did that again. You did. It's so violent. It is. And yes, it is. So my sources, I use the Wikipedia page for the guy who did it, the Yorkshire Ripper. Oh, hold on a second. I need some wine, Tyler, before you can go any further. No, that's... you. Yeah, just fill it up a little more. No, I think that's good. Okay, well, just trying to help out here. You're going to be pouring again soon. I'm sure I will, but thank you for giving me that wine moment. It was refill time. It was. Uh, I also used an article in The Mirror by Jane Lavender, an article on the website Crime and Investigation UK, and an article in All That's Interesting by Cara Goldfarb. So, starting in 1975... A killer started this really horrifying murder spree in Yorkshire, England, that ultimately earned him the name the Yorkshire Ripper. And before the murders actually started, the killer was known to have assaulted at least four young women, one by hitting her over the head with a stone inside a sock in 1969. Oh! Oh, yeah. And then three others with a hammer and a knife in 1975. That was before the murders really started. And most of his victims were sex workers, but not all of them. His first murder victim was a woman named Wilma McCann. He wound up stabbing her 15 times in the neck and the stomach after hitting her over the head with a hammer in 1975. Yeah, he hits her in the head with a hammer and then stabs her in the neck and stomach 15 times. There's no need. For all of that. Well, there's no. there's no need for any of this. I mean, no. Um, he killed her at night, and she was just 150 yards away from her house where her four children were sleeping. It always just, I don't, oh, what is the right phrase? It's more than, like, breaks my heart, because it just, like, it pains me, because when people are so close to home, when they are right there, and they don't make it inside. I know. So this murder, I mean, it shocked the town. There was a huge police inquiry that had more than 150 police officers, more than 11,000 interviews, but they didn't find anything. And on December 2007, jumping into the future quite a bit, one of Wilma's daughters reportedly committed suicide after suffering depression for years after her mom's death. The killer's next victim was a woman named Emily Jackson, and she was stabbed more than 50 times. Emily, she and her family were hit really hard financially, and so she'd started working as a sex worker. The killer picked her up outside a pub, drove her about a half mile to some rundown buildings, and then he hit her on the head with a hammer and dragged her body into this just like trash-filled yard. And then he used a sharpened screwdriver to stab her in the neck, the chest, and abdomen. And then he stomped on her thigh 
hard enough to leave behind an impression of his boot on her. It's like he's experimenting with all these different weapons to see what he likes best. Like, he just keeps using tools and knives and the level of aggression he is showing with the multiple stabs. This person is a monster. Uh, Oh, yeah. His next victim was a 20-year-old woman named Marcella Claxton. She was walking home from a party and the killer drove up and was like, oh, here, hop in my car. I can take you the rest of the way. And she was like, okay. So he drives her home. And as she's getting out of the car to pee, because I guess they're not home yet. um, She gets out of the car to pee. He hits her from behind with a hammer. But she survived. But at the time she was attacked, she'd been four months pregnant and wound up miscarrying after being attacked, being hit over the head. But he just hit her over the head with the hammer and then left her? Yeah, I don't I don't think she had any stab wounds. I don't know if he thought she was dead or what. Another woman he attacked was Irene Richardson. She was a sex worker, also in Leeds, and she was bludgeoned to death with the hammer. And then once she was dead, the killer mutilated her body with a knife. But he also left tire tracks near her body. So that was a clue they finally had of something. Because they had Marcella's, like, eyewitness report. and Or, I guess, victim statement. Not eyewitness report. But of, like, what he might have looked like and stuff. But this was finally like, aha, he had, they had tire treads. But there was a long list of vehicles these tires could have gone to. Yeah, I mean, it's good to have a piece of evidence, but I know they were hoping for something more than tire tracks. Yeah. Two months after that, he killed Patricia Tina Atkinson. She was a sex worker from Bradford, and he killed her in her own flat, where police found a boot print on the, like, bed sheets. Another piece of evidence. Oh, yeah, the little piece of evidence. They're, like, finding a little bit at each crime scene. It's also, like, I will say, he seems to be leaving pretty obvious ones. Like, almost breadcrumbs. Almost, yeah. Because this is a second boot print. Two months after murdering Tina, he murdered a 16-year-old girl named Jane McDonald in Chapeltown in Leeds. She wasn't a sex worker. She was the first victim, I think, that was not a sex worker. And so the, like, public perception of this is, oh, shit. All women are potential victims. He's not just targeting the sex workers in the area. Which I will say, even if people thought he was only targeting sex workers, I hope people were still cautious and wary and just like aware of the situation and not just ignoring it. Although I wouldn't be surprised if people were just ignoring it. Oh, I don't fit that profile. I'm safe. Exactly. Putting it out of your mind. Yeah. His next victim was a woman named Maureen Long in Bradford, and she also survived. While he was attacking her, he was interrupted, and he fled, and he just left her for dead, but she survived. Good. And there was a witness to this, and to his escape. Oh, so someone really saw him. Yeah, but the witness misidentified the make of his car, so the police surge of looking at all these cars that the witness identified there was no success because it wasn't the right one you know that is one thing that i feel like would be so difficult if it's not 
a car that's extremely common, being able to actually remember what it is. Or if you see a white sedan, how are you going to remember if that's a Toyota Corolla or a Camry or or if it's a Honda or if it's an Acura? Oh, yeah. I feel like for the most part, you kind of have to know cars or get such a good look at it that you can see, okay, there's the Ford symbol and there's the part that says escort on the back exactly and it's like well what do you want me to be looking for when i'm looking at a car the make and model or the license plate number yeah they're a serial killer and if they're driving a white ford bronco oj is in the back seat every single new bronco did you know they're making the like the broncos back yeah it is back they're beautiful I know I want one. Same. But I'm not about to buy a white Ford Bronco. No, I don't want a white car. Period. No, I want a black one. I want to be that, like, ooh, I'm an executive bitch pulling up dark windows. Look at me, sunglasses. With a valet and a bad pop music career. (laughs) I want a black car, but I already don't wash my car enough, so I know it would just be bad news. Yeah, I want to be rich enough to have a black car and not have to think about taking it to the car wash every week, basically. That's the, that's the true level of wealth I aspire to. Not having to worry about the expenditure of getting a car wash every week. Wouldn't that be nice? You're supposed to wash a car weekly? I mean, if it's black, I don't know. I don't, I've never owned a black car. Anyway, so this witness misidentified the car. Yes misidentified the car but again this was not the only piece of evidence or tip that police got during this investigation they got a lot of evidence and different tips coming in that could lead them to the killer so time jump a little bit one of the things they received that diverted their attention for several months was a taped message that was from the killer And it was taunting the assistant chief constable, George Oldfield, who was, like, leading the investigation. Wait, a taped message is in, like, written and then taped on something? Or, like, recorded? Like, recorded. This is the 80s. Well, late 70s. Yeah, I know you can write on a piece of paper and tape it up somewhere, no matter what the year is. I wouldn't call that a taped message, though, unless this was, like, 1854. (laughs) Fair. Like, well, he, he set it into the wax as the needle ran by it, and... Box that up, because apparently you can make recordings that way. No, it's like a, I don't know, little, not walkie-talkie, it's tape recorder yeah. message. Yeah, on a little cassette tape. Yeah, just think an old-timey voicemail, essentially. But anyway, the message contained a man's voice saying, I'm Jack. I see you're having no luck in catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George, but Lord, you're no nearer catching me now than four years ago when I started. I'm sorry, Jack the Ripper? Oh, yeah, probably. Because if he was- I just caught that. If he was known as the Yorkshire Ripper, he obviously knew that, and so he's saying his name is Jack. Or his name was Jack because it's like Middle England and like everyone's named Jack. There's a boat, Jack. I'm going to go with Jack the Ripper. (laughs) Yeah, probably that. But based on this message they received, police began searching for a man with a Wareside accent because linguists were able to narrow down his accent to the Castletown area of Sunderland. I have no idea what this accent sounds like, but that is so fascinating to me. That is like us speaking and linguists being able to be like, well, 
clearly you can tell they're from central Oklahoma, likely the northern or northern suburbs of Oklahoma City. And I'm like, how the fuck? Because people have regional dialects. And it's crazy because I feel like we think about this in more of like past terms and in not like present terms. But I bet it becomes a lot more difficult when people move around. But okay, here's the thing. Do you remember that test super The New York Times dialect test? Yes. Yes. And how accurate it is just based on how you pronounce certain words and that it could pick areas that you have lived in. And it was so scary accurate. No, it was not 100%, but the level of accuracy just... it. I was shaking in my boots. There's a snake in my <laughs> boots. <laughs> no, but yeah, listeners, if y- y'all are in the United States, or if you're not, because I'd be so interested to see what like outside accented people, outside accented, hmm, that's the phrase, but people from other countries, the different dialects taking this quiz where it would place y'all. But if you just Google like New York Times dialect test or quiz, it'll pop up. It's from like, four or five years ago and it's so accurate it's like 20 questions and they're different things like what do you call when you're selling all your shit in front of your house and it's like oh a garage sale or a yard sale or like and then some of them are weird they're like a sidewalk sticky and i'm like i don't know what that is or Or it's like do you have the caught caught merger you know the the thing you lay down on to camp and then what you say when billy catches the ball do you pronounce those differently or the same? And I'm like, oh no, caught, caught. <laughs> I was so confused. I was like, when Billy catches the ball, like, what do you mean? Um, he caught it. <laughs> you no, know, I, I get it now. But there's also mm-hmm. the one, I don't know why I remember this one so much. I think because I never realized there was another term. But for the house that's diagonal to you, I call it caddy corner. A lot of people call it kitty corner. And I'm like, kitty corner? Something I learned in Seattle. In Seattle, they say kitty corner. And I'm like, kitty. (laughs) You're like, it's caddy. It's close enough that I got it. I'm like, oh, I understand what you're saying. You're just saying it wrong. (laughs) And they're like, this dumbass from Oklahoma, caddy corner. Uh, Another thing I learned in Seattle, we call it pre-gaming. They call it pre-funking. And the first time I heard someone say it, I thought they were shitting me. <laughs> and they were like, oh, yeah, before we go, do you want to pre-funk at my place? And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, get ready for the party. <laughs> like, pre-funk. They're like, like, have drinks. And then we go. And I'm like, pre-gaming? And they're like, what game? <laughs> and it all crashed down on me. And I'm like, oh, my God. Are we so south that we say that? Because... It's like before the football game, you drink out of the bed of the truck. And that's why we call it pre-gaming. Because <laughs> yes. that's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tyler. But we but when it's at a football game, it's called tailgating. Get it right. Yeah, no, I, I know that. I'm from here. But yeah, anyway, it's a fascinating test. And probably not using that exact same test, but using knowledge that built that test was how they were like, okay, the Yorkshire Ripper, he's from Castletown in Sunderland. And so this man they started calling Westside Jack, he sent two letters to police and to the Daily Mirror in March of 78, boasting about his murders. And in his letters, he signed them Jack the Ripper, like you said. Why is he going for this, like, Zodiac theme, too, with the letters to the police? Well, 
We'll get into that. In these letters, he claimed responsibility for the murder of 26-year-old Joan Harrison in Preston in November of 75. And at the time, police were like, oh shit, Joan Harrison's murder is not public knowledge that we think it was this guy. So this is legit him. The thing is, though, a couple news stations had reported that. Police just didn't know that. There was a lot of disorganization in the police going on, because that, for them, this letter saying, oh, also, I murdered Joan, that basically confirms to police, they're like, this is the killer. When, no, it's not. It's not? No, because the police didn't realize until much later, this was all a hoax. The letters are a hoax? Yeah. And the taped confession, because they were coming from the same person. Who does that? I have no idea. But this Westside Jack hoaxer, he was also given a lot of credibility because they analyzed the saliva on the notes, like on the envelopes he'd sent. And it showed that he had the same blood group as the Yorkshire Ripper had left at some crime scenes. And so this was a type that was only shared by 6% of people. So between this not public knowledge, they thought, and the 6%, like, the match that can only be 6% of people, they were convinced. But, in fact, these details that the killer, that the hoaxer, writing these letters and sending this in knew, had been, like, he were in the local newspaper, and also just, like, pub gossip. So... At the end of the day, they expended so much time and resources, like, full-on tunnel visioning, this is our guy, and it was a dead end, because it was a hoax. And the real killer was still out there. That's crazy, and this guy wasn't, like, related to the real killer, because the whole, like, blood thing? Nope. Just a total coincidence. I mean, one thing I think is important to remember, and maybe it has a lot to do in this case, maybe it doesn't. But I feel like England is one of those places where you see a lot more people, especially in like the Midlands area, that is like, oh, you can trace my family back 800 years and they live 20 miles away from here. I mean, what was that? That's a good point. I feel like you had, it might have been a murder mini in the past, but you had a case where hundreds of years ago murders happened and the descendant lived like 15 miles away today. Yeah, I v- vaguely remember, but I don't yeah. I, I don't recall. I don't recall. But I think that was Wales, which <laughs> is not the same as England. <laughs> Cardiff compared to Manchester? I never. I've never been to either. I want to go so bad. I want to go to Wales so bad and not just because of Torchwood. Yeah. Is, uh, what's his face there, do you think? You know, Captain Jack? The face of Bo? Oh, yes, actually, <laughs> Same person. Uh, no, I think he's, I think John Barrowman's Scottish. Scotland's very fun. I know David Tennant's Scottish. Anywho, this is not a Doctor Who tangent, but it kind of is. Speaking of David Tennant, there is a film, I think it's on Sundance, um, and it may be coming out, I'm not sure what streaming service, and it might be a show and not a film, but he is playing Dennis Nielsen. The, the like, oh, yeah, I saw that like on Instagram or something. Yeah, I keep seeing it everywhere. And I need to look and see when it comes out because, oh my God, they made him look just like him and it freaks me out and I have to watch it. Yeah. 
David Tennant is always going to be my doctor. Always. L-O-Z. Anywho. Okay. So, yeah. The Wareside Jack, not the dude. The real dude is Peter Sutcliffe. So, Peter Sutcliffe, he was born in Bingley, Yorkshire in 1946 to a normal working class family. He was kind of lonely and kind of a kind of a weird kid when he was younger. And then at 15, he dropped out of school and started going from job to job. And one of those jobs was as a grave digger. As you have when you're 15. Yeah. And so as a grave digger, he's a teenager. And, uh, you know, among his fellow workers in the graveyard, he got this reputation for this morbid sense of humor on the job. And he also had this obsession with sex workers. And always watching them work on the streets in Leeds. Like, he would just uh, voyeur and watch them like a weirdo. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Unless you're paying them for this, and you have the consent of, like, the person that they're working with, their John. Unless you have all of that. If that's your thing, if you're like, yeah, I pay Camille, Tim's cool with it, I watch him. And the leap. Cool. Go for it. I'm not going to yuck your yum. But um, unless that's it, the case, uh, don't fucking be a weird ass voyeur. Just don't watch people that don't want, like, that don't know you're watching them. Like, let's just not do that. Unless you live in New York, then have some binoculars and stare at your apartment at all the people. We're all voyeurs in one way, shape, or form. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm not. Don't do that. It's wrong, but it's so interesting to. I'm. I. From. Okay. <laughs> Naked guy! I've. I've told that story on the podcast, right? I don't know. About. Okay. So I used to work at a job in Seattle. We were on a higher floor of a building across from a hotel. And one of my coworkers, she was. I loved her so much. She was the most grandma, grandma you've ever met. And she kept binoculars and occasionally would yell, naked guy! And we'd all run to the windows and she'd pass the binoculars because there'd be a naked guy like waving his dick at the window of the hotel. (laughs) When people think no one can see, yet they can. If you open your blinds and start waving your dick at the window from like the 30th floor... One, honey, it's not big enough. No one can see it. But two, we we have binoculars... We'd need binoculars if we were in the same room, though, honey. Oh, hi. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, don't be a voyeur, but be curious. I don't know. (laughs) Don't be a voyeur. You're like, don't be like too much of a creep. Just be like a little bit of a creep. I'm just going to say, though, I think one of the most fascinating and intimate things is when you're like driving or like walking in a neighborhood and like... You can see into someone's house, like you're walking by, and you see them like in the living room watching TV or cooking dinner, because it's such a mind trip. Because when you're at home, mm-hmm. that is the most you, the most like you can full off turn off the mindset that others are around you and watching. It's your safe space. And it's like it's it's your safe space, and it's like the most personal inward and outward you're ever going to be. So just like. Seeing a glimpse of that, I don't know. It's just, to me, it's so, 
intimate feels like the wrong word because now I'm, I feel like I'm sounding like a voyeur, but I'm not. No, but it's- I'm just like, God, I just think of like, you know, when I'm in my living room watching TV or in my kitchen cooking, I'm not thinking about like, what do I look like? And it's one of the only times that that's never anywhere in my mind of like, what does it look like when I'm doing this? Because I feel like when I'm <laughs> in the grocery store or walking to work or something, that's always a little piece in there. I don't want to ever constantly have the thought, what do I look like doing this? Because, well, I mean, we, we do, though. You subconsciously, not all of us, for those of y'all that don't have that thought, I applaud you. But for the rest of God. us, we're like, oh my gosh, what do I look like walking down the aisle with my cart? Do I look like I know what I'm doing? Do I look lost? You said walking down the aisle and I thought married and then cart <laughs> thrown into it? No. Oh my God. Oh, but if you had like a dog that wouldn't cooperate as your like ring bearer and you have to put them in the little like baby cart to roll them in front of you, that's a fucking adorable wedding. I'm putting that on my list. <laughs> I'm going to wheel Max in a little baby cart with the rings on his collar. I need a husband first, but like, once that hurdle's over, this part of the planning's done. In a little bow tie, like a clip-on bow tie as a collar. Yeah. Shut the hell up. It's perfect. Anyways, this is a long tangent, but it's a necessary one, because I don't really want to talk about Peter Sutcliffe, but we have to. So, other than... Being a voyeur and a creepy grave digger, pretty much on that, Peter's life seemed pretty normal on the outside while he's attacking, at this point, attacking and murdering sex workers. He met a local woman named Sonia Susmira in 1967, and they got married in 1974. And then he got a job as a truck driver. So now he has pretty steady employment. His wife, she's like a stay at home wife. I don't think they have kids. So I don't know. She sits at home, takes value, and watches TV like we all do. <laughs> um, but because of his job as a truck driver, he's out on the road for a long time without any questions. Him not being home for two weeks doing something, no one's going to ask him twice. He's a truck driver. And this is kind of when he started moving into murdering sex workers instead of just attacking them. So we know that Peter is the Yorkshire Ripper, right? We know that. At this point, police don't. Okay. I I had, like, been assuming that's where we were going, but this was the moment when I was certain. Yeah. So, Peter is the Yorkshire Ripper, and although that's kind of the big <gasps> twist whodunit at the end, I feel like to make some of the next things, like, impactful and what the fuck, to really hit on that, it's important for us as the blind audience to know he is where the police in the case do not. It's like you're reading a book and you know things that the main characters don't. Let's break the fourth wall. That's what this podcast does. So on October 1st of 1977, Sutcliffe murdered a woman named Jean Jordan. She was a sex worker in Manchester. After murdering her, he realized that he'd paid her with a five pound note that was new. And he had thought of, oh shit, that's traceable. I mean, I guess technically, I guess because it's new, like it's a brand new crisp from the bank one, it's traceable. Not a thought I would have ever had. But can you look at a piece of money and know what bank it came from? Oh, yes, you can. 
Because, so, well, no, actually, that makes sense because money all has numbers and I'm sure they register like, oh, you know, easy numbers. $1 bills, 100 to 200 went to this bank and they have records of that shit, right? Yeah. And I guess the banks might even keep records of, oh, well, notes 115 to 181 went were paid to this account. I don't know. Oh. But yeah, I mean, they're able to trace it. But he realized this, like, I guess as he was on his way home to a family party after, like, he literally, he murdered this woman and then went to a family party at his house, at his new home. And after the party, he returned to where he left her body and, like, to to get the $5 bill, the five-pound bill from her. But he wasn't able to find it. So instead, he mutilated her body and then moved it and hid it. I do not understand a lot of this, number one, but what I was going to say is I don't understand someone who could murder someone, go to a party, act completely normal, like nothing's up, go back to the scene. Like, because even at the party, you knew in the back of his head, if he was thinking about this five pound bill, that he was like, well, I got to go get that. But also in his head, everybody was like, she's not going anywhere. But... My point is, like, the ability for him to just shut down that part of his mind, just be like, oh, we good, and then go back and and mutilate her body? I know. To be able to have just murdered someone and put that out of your mind so you can enjoy some, like, hors d'oeuvres, some Donna Summer, hanging with your family, and then knowing that you're going to go back and either, you know, desecrate her trying to find this money or mutilate her. If you can't. So about a little over a week later on October 9th, her body was discovered by a local dairy worker and apparently future actor named Bruce Jones. I don't know who that is. He's a future actor, though. It's the future now. Bruce Jones, you can find him on IMDb. Probably on his trivia page, it's that he was part of this murder case. Probably. But her body was found on a piece of land that was like next to his. And the five-pound note was actually, she'd hidden it in a secret compartment of her purse. But police found this five-pound note in her purse, and they were able to trace it back to the branches of the Midland Bank in Shipley and Bingley. And then police were able to analyze the bank operations and narrow their field to 8,000 employees who could have received this five-pound note in their paycheck. Or in their wage packet, as they called it. They did exactly what he was worried they were going to do. I'm so glad that that actually happened. Uh, same. Because the, I get, I'm like, I've no, I don't think I've ever read a case or heard of a case where tracing individual bills that weren't as part of like a sting operation or bank robbery or thing like that, tracing a specific bill to find... A suspect. Same. But that's what they did here. They wound up interviewing over 5,000 men, including Sutcliffe. But police found that his alibi was credible. Because his alibi was... The party! Oh no, that night, that night I was at a family party. Here are all the people that can vouch for me and say I was there. And he was. And that's why he went to the fucking party. I don't know if it was why he went, or it just also happened to be but yeah because i can't imagine he had the forethought of i'm gonna have a party right after this so that can be my alibi if but 
it was the perfect alibi because it was true. Yeah. So they had weeks of investigation on trying to find the origin of this five-pound note, but it didn't leave anywhere. Then on December 14th, Sutcliffe attacked Marilyn Moore. She was another sex worker out of Leeds. She survived, though, and she was able to provide police with a description of the man who attacked her. And he'd also, again, left tire tracks at the scene, and these matched the earlier tire tracks. By January of 1978, though, police had kind of stopped looking and tried to investigate who owned this five-pound note, because they really just weren't getting anywhere. I mean, they'd already talked to him and ruled him out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, they talked to him about it, but he wasn't really investigated any further. They'd contacted him and disregarded him as the Ripper on many other occasions, too. Oh, so he's one of those people that they keep looking at, and he, he we know he's the guy, but they've dismissed him over and over, so obviously he's not a suspect. Yeah, I mean, they're like, well, maybe him? I mean, it's just popping up again. Let's talk to him. Nope, Alibi checks out. It really isn't him. Multiple times. So that same month that they stopped looking for the person who owned the five-pound note, he murdered again. This time, a 21-year-old sex worker named Yvonne Pearson in Bradford. He bludgeoned her over the head with a ball-peen hammer and then jumped on her chest before stuffing horse hair into her mouth that he'd found from, like, a sofa that thrown been thrown out what and then he hid her body under the sofa Th- it seems so random yeah i just the jumping on her chest to like break her sternum and her internal organs and her body wasn't found for a few months until late march like i said his violence is escalating oh yeah so 10 days after he murdered yvonne he killed a woman named Helen Reitka. She was an 18-year-old sex worker in Huddersfield. He struck her in the head five times as she got out of his vehicle, before he then took off most of her clothes, but like left her bra and her sweater on, but just like pushed them up above her breasts, before he repeatedly stabbed her in the chest. On May 16th, he murdered a woman named Vera Millward, and she was attacked in a parking lot just outside the Manchester Royal Infirmary, like the hospital. He just murdered her in the hospital parking lot. Oh my god. On April 4th of 1979, he murdered 19-year-old Josephine Whitaker, and she wasn't a sex worker. She was a building society clerk, but he attacked her in the Seville Park Moor in Halifax as she was just walking home from work. Then on September 1st, he murdered a 20-year-old woman named Barbara Leach. She was a student at Bradford University, and this was his 16th attack. And again, she wasn't a sex worker, and her murder alarmed the public again, and it prompted a huge publicity campaign that was, again, still emphasizing this Wareside connection, because they still thought Wareside Jack was the guy. And also, Sutcliffe doesn't have a Wareside accent. I forgot that they still thought it was the letter guy. Oh, yeah. I I did the time jump earlier. But basically, through all the case I've been talking about, they're, they're looking for this guy with a Wearside accent. But again, despite looking for this Wearside guy, he was interviewed at least two times in 1979. 
And despite the fact that he matched several forensic clues, including being in a list that they've narrowed down to 300 names that could have received this five-pound note, he wasn't a strong suspect. Police at this point had interviewed him nine times. This is so gut-wrenching that they have talked to him this many times. They're not able to find anything that leads them to believe he's done it, except that they keep bringing him in. They really don't think it's him. Like, each time they let him go, they're convinced, like, okay, yeah, it's not him. But the fact that it is him, and he has been able to escape and murder more and more women. Like, man, talk about a slippery fucking snake slipping through the, the hands of the police over and over. Yeah. So then in April of 1980, Sutcliffe was actually arrested for drunk driving. But while he was awaiting trial for drunk driving, he murdered two more women. He murdered a 47-year-old woman named Marguerite Walls on August 20th, and then a 20-year-old woman named Jacqueline Hill, who was a student at Leeds University, on November 17th. He also attacked three other women who survived, Upadja Bandera in Leeds, Maureen Leah, who's also known as Mo, that was actually on the grounds of Leeds University, and then a 16-year-old Teresa Sykes, who was attacked in Huddersfield, but the three of them survived. Also, on November 25th, a man named Trevor Birdsall, who was like an associate or co-worker of Sutcliffe, reported Sutcliffe to the police as a suspect. Oh. And he called them and was like, look, he is matching so much of this shit. I work with him. I think it's him. But the information just kind of vanished into the paperwork that had already accumulated. This was just another tip they had. And they'd already talked to him so many times that they're like, meh, we know it's not him. Well, they're thinking, okay, maybe we take another look at this guy. But it, there's there's not really much haste to it. Right. But on January 2nd of 1981, two police officers approached him because he was, like, sitting in a parked car in an area where sex workers and their customers were, like, routinely spotted. Like, it was kind of a well-known area for sex work. He's sitting in his car, chilling, or something. So the cops go up to him, and they're like, hey. And they're like, you know, we're just gonna do a little check. So they did, like, a license plate check, and the car had false plates. So they're like, okay, dude, we're arresting you. But it was just for the false plates. It wasn't for any kind of murders or really any suspicion of the murders, but they arrest him on this. But then as they're kind of like booking him, doing their paperwork, they're like, okay, but his appearance, he really fits this Yorkshire Ripper guy. So they started questioning him about the Yorkshire Ripper case again. Remember, he'd already been brought in nine times for this. He is probably at this point just like, guys, these are all the same questions. So after two days of interrogation, Peter Sutcliffe confessed that he was the Yorkshire Ripper, and then he spent the next day describing all of his crimes in detail. Oh, he was ready for bragging time. Oh, yeah. So Sutcliffe was now facing 13 counts of murder, but he pled not guilty to murder. He pled guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Because he said that he self-diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, 
and that he was just a tool of God's will. And he claimed to hear voices that ordered him to murder sex workers. Tool is right. Jesus, fuck this guy. I mean, I'd call him a little more than just a tool, but yeah. Yeah, he is horrible. Mm -hmm. And remember, you know, his wife that he has during all of this? Oh, I forgot he was married. Oh, he's married. That's exactly what he told her. She never knew a thing about any of these murders. And she only learned the truth when he told her himself just after the arrest. Like, oh, honey, by the way, I did kill all those women. Mm -hmm. But he told her again, it was this mission from God that told him. And whether she believed it, the jury did not. Because Peter was found guilty on 13 counts of murder and 7 counts of attempted murder. And he was given 20 concurrent life sentences. Whoa. So finally, the Yorkshire Ripper, his murder spree came to an end. He's finally off the streets. Peter Sutcliffe was transferred to a psychiatric facility, uh, Broadmoor Hospital, in 1984, after he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And also while in Broadmoor, his wife divorced him, and he also faced several attacks from other inmates, because this, I mean, this is a horrifying crime that even a lot of the other people in prison with him, they're not fucking standing for this kind of crime. And how many women, how many young women, children he murdered? Because a couple of his victims were 16. They're kids. Yeah. And we all know that people who are murderers and serial killers such as himself, like, they aren't safe in prison. No, and I would imagine in the UK, with it having such a lower uh, murder rate than the US, yeah. it's, I mean, even looked as more horrifying and disgusting to those in prison. Yeah, and a lot of the times it seems like they take justice into their own hands. Yeah. So in one of his attacks in 1997... Sutcliffe was left blind in his left eye after an inmate attacked him with a pen. And then 10 years after that, another inmate attacked him saying, you fucking raping, murdering bastard, I'll blind your fucking other one. And did he? Um, I don't know if he, I don't think he blinded his other eye. He did survive the attack. Um, and two years after that attack, he was fit enough to leave Broadmoor Hospital and after several years of processing, they transferred him to a non-psychiatric prison in 2016. Oh, all of that happened so, in the psychiatric prison? Yeah, in Broadmoor. Oh my god. So, flashback a little bit to this hoaxer case I brought up earlier. Because who the fuck was this hoaxer who sent in these envelopes and the voice recording and all that that threw the police off for years and legitimately probably was a reason that he wasn't caught before and so kind of tangentially v responsible for the murders of these women i mean i say tangentially because let's be real the only person responsible for murder is the murderer themselves yeah but had this person not decided i'm gonna be funny and send fake letters and a fake voice recording he might have been caught earlier and these people would have survived and never been attacked. But the hoaxer case was reopened in 2005, 
and the DNA that was taken from the envelopes was entered into a national database. So on October 20th of 05, John Samuel Humble, he was an unemployed man and a longtime resident of the Ford Estate in Sunderland, which was just a few miles from Castleton. He was charged with attempting to pervert the course of justice for sending the hoax letters in the tape. Because in 2001, Humble had been arrested after like a drunken disorderly offense, and they'd taken his DNA and put it into the system. They got a match from these letters. So in 2006, Humble was convicted and sentenced to eight years in prison, and Humble died on July 30th of 2019 when he was 63 but yeah it was just some dude bored wanting attention who the fuck knows well i'm glad that they did open that up and punish him for it because without that sidetrack they could have found the actual killer sooner oh same i'm like eight years in prison yeah yeah it's not a fucking prank it's not a joke it's literally as they said perverting the course of justice Definitely. So today, the Yorkshire Ripper remains behind bars, and after different attempts to get parole have all been denied, the court has said that he will never be released. And as of November 11th of 2020, so, you know, like- Yesterday. Not that long ago. Yeah, yesterday as of recording, he is currently severely ill in the hospital with COVID-19. So- Yeah, I saw a lot of, when I was doing my research for this case, I saw a lot of, like, news stories from yesterday. And I was like, what? News stories from today? Excuse me. But yeah, he's severely ill in the hospital with coronavirus. This is going to be part of our cases in the future. I mean, yeah, because you think about, and honestly, I don't have a ton of sympathy for him. Obviously, I don't want him to die because I don't want anyone to die. But... I don't have a ton of sympathy for this guy. No. Not gonna lie. No. But, I mean, when you think about the prison population, all of those people who might be in prison because they were caught with some weed on them, or because they had another DUI, or, you know, lots of reasons. Can you imagine a population less able to properly social distance and quarantine than a prison no, no, I I had heard that COVID was running rampant in the prisons. Oh, yeah. I know in Austin, and this was months ago, but they made a move to severely reduce the capacity of the jails in the city because of COVID-19. A lot of places did like, that. And I'm like, good. A lot of places did that a few months ago. I mean, do you remember um, freaking Joe Exotic was moved to a different prison because of COVID? Yeah. Like, that's very much a thing and maybe something we should look into further. I mean, honestly, we're probably only about six months away from being able to do, like, a a COVID case in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. COVID murder. A murderer who coughed on people and was like, (laughs) I have COVID, and then actually killed people because they're being a dumbass. Yeah. I am glad that the people that have been like, "Uh I'm going to do a prank and like cough on people and tell them I have COVID being arrested and charged with threats of biological terrorism. I'm like, that's what you're doing. Like, this is not a joke. This is something more than a quarter million Americans have died from and over a million people across the world. 
It's not a joke to, haha, I coughed. No. Nope. So, uh, yeah, little little bit of a turn at the end of my case. But, uh, yes, that is my case. That is the Yorkshire Killer. That is my unexpected and twist and turned fold filled case. The Yorkshire Ripper. That was a lot. Yeah. Well, if you found this episode as unexpected as we did and enjoyed it, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us those five stars. We greatly appreciate your reviews and thank you so much. Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check out our website. Check out our merch store. Get our awesome logo on a t-shirt, on a hat, on a, I think, coffee cup, dog bandana, tote bag. Get it on all the things. Make your home and your wardrobe blood and wine. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.